being uh, a week from Sunday, we'll be doing our excellent Wednesday service there. We'll do a topical on uh, Christ on the cross, and we'll also finish with communion then. So, real quick word of prayer, and then let's dig right into this. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, just uh, pray as always, Lord, you would teach, we would listen. And uh, let your spirit guide and direct us to take us deeper in you and our walks and our relationships with you. And Lord, just pray once again. I know there's a lot of families that uh, things pop up this evening. Just be with them. A lot of stuff going on. Just pray your hand be upon them health-wise and also just, Lord, spiritually. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Now, we left off last week in verse 18 because... Through chapter 3, we kind of finish with this point of Moses having the veil on his face when he went to go receive the law, and then the veil being lifted and the glory being lifted. So we talked about the difference between the law and the new covenant that we have. And so that the law was this uh, law of uh, condemnation, as it says there in verse 9. We're now living in this age of grace. It's a more glorious one that it says. Well, Verse 18 is really kind of a segue to the next chapter. And as always, you got to remember this, and I think I tell you guys this all the time. When the New Testament was written, or when the books of the Bible were written, I should say, they didn't have verse and chapter breaks. They were one continuous flow in thought. So, so often we break these things up. We're really the beauty of this is reading the whole thing and getting the picture of it. So really, verse 18 is a great segue into chapter 4. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's a neat verse. It's a mouthful, but it's a neat verse. That verse is saying, You are being transformed into the same image as the Lord. Isn't that a fascinating concept? That word transformed, I love that word. Now, I, I think the New King James actually does a little bit better job translating that. For you good old King Jamesers out there, you simply just have the word changed. I don't think that's a strong enough word. That word transformed is actually the Greek word metamorphosis. Now, the word of basically the little caterpillar going in the cocoon and becoming the butterfly. Metamorphosis. That's what that word is changing. You are actually being metamorphosized into a picture of Christ. Now, if you would ever look at a caterpillar and then look at a butterfly, you would have to say they look completely and absolutely different. What Paul is trying to tell you is your before Christ walk and your after Christ walk should be so completely different that no one can even make a comparison. Because you have gone from the caterpillar to the butterfly. Too often you see people make a confession of Christ and their lives really don't change. What changes from how they used to live to what they are now? And as the, as the old saying goes, if you've been saved, what did God actually save you from? Because if you're continuing down the same path and continuing down the same pattern, well, how have you been changed? We're supposed to have a metamorphosis, verse 18, of going from the caterpillar to the butterfly. That's the setup here now for the rest of this, is our goal is to be Christ-like in all that we say and do. And I don't know about you, but when I see this idea of becoming Christ-like, it's very difficult. And why do we have to become Christ-like? Because we're all sinners. Just jump ahead to chapter 5. Look at verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The reason we need to become more Christ-like is because we're all sinners. Romans 3 is this great chapter on how there's none who are righteous, no, not one. None who does good, no, not one. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. That's why we need to become Christ-like. If you're taking notes, great verse on this, Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our works are like filthy rags. On your best day, you and I are still unholy. That's why we need to be transformed is because we are sinners and we have to be transformed into the image of Christ. 
Everything we do is supposed to make us Christ-like in what we do and say. Now, once again, sometimes I don't feel very Christ-like. And some days I don't really even want to act Christ-like because that's my sin fleshly nature. What do you do in situations like that? There's a great phrase that's repeated in numerous verses throughout the New Testament where the Lord says you're supposed to put on Christ. I like that phrase, put on Christ. I've shared this story with you before, so forgive me for the repetition, but John Corson tells a story in one of his commentaries that I read one time that he ran into the supermarket at the end of a long day, and he had his, uh, one of his sons with him. It's been a long day. He just wanted to go in, grab the milk, get out of there, if you've ever had a trip like that. Well, he turned the corner, turned the aisle, and what did he run into? Someone from his church. Well, being a good pastor he is, you just can't ignore people. So he walks up to them, and do the classic, hey, how you doing? You kind of expect to hear the good answer, like I'm fine, and keep walking. This person wasn't fine. person broke down, started crying right there in the middle of the aisle. So what did John do? He stopped, ministered to them, preached to them, encouraged them, prayed with them. He was tired. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to grab his milk. He wanted to go home. His son knew that. So he got done, grabbed the milk and went, and his son said, Dad, that whole thing with that gal, he goes, were you faking that? And John Corson's response goes, no, I wasn't faking. He goes, I put on Christ. Because isn't that what you do? There are some times in your flesh you just don't want to be Christ-like. I don't want to be Christ-like. Let's just be honest. So what do you do when you don't want to be Christ-like? You've got to put on Christ. You're not faking it because my flesh is sinful. My flesh wants to do wrong things. That's the battle of Christianity. So therefore, there are certain times where in my flesh, I don't really want to minister to people or stay up a little bit and pray or crack the Bible open or let's just be honest, do what's right. But you know what? The Holy Spirit lives inside of me, so therefore I put on Christ and say, what does Christ want me to do? Because, verse 18, I'm being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. God says, James, I want to transform you, metamorphosize you from the caterpillar to the butterfly. And the way you do that is you need to be led by the Spirit, verse 18, and become more like Christ. Come on, we are all that way. You're going to have a situation at work sometime soon where you're going to want to respond in the flesh. What do you do? You put on Christ. You're going to have a spot in your marriage where you're going to want to chuck it all, give up and have the fight, the argument, whatever. What do you do? You put on Christ. This is what we do. Our flesh wants to do things that are not good, that are not spiritual, that don't take us deeper. So what do we do? We put on Christ. We are transformed like we're supposed to in verse 18. Is that difficult to do? It's exceptionally difficult to do. Hence, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, why would Paul, through the Spirit, write, don't lose heart? Because we lose heart. He writes to us, don't lose heart, because when you hear verse 18 of putting on Christ, changing, being more godlike in what you say and do, the first thing you think is, how hard is that? I work with people that make it difficult for me to put on Christ. I live with people that make it difficult for me to put on Christ. That's part of the life we live in. It's difficult to put on Christ, and so therefore Paul writes to us, don't lose heart. One of my favorite verses, and I probably quote this verse in the top ten of, of all the verses I, I give people, and you don't have to turn that, I'll just read it to you real quick. It's out of Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Now, why would it say once again to not grow weary while doing good? Because it's very wearisome to do good. Quick story. I, don't, I like doing taxes. I've shared that with you before. But it's reached the point now where just everything going on with taxes and things like that, it's reached the point where it's almost just easier to, to let something else happen, let somebody else do it. 
Well, I was working on taxes and, and thought everything was finished and thought everything was taken care of, and I'm going through the paperwork, and you find out there's one paper that I forgot to add a little bit of money into. And I went back, and you do the quick math, you do the quick figuring, and I'm not exaggerating here, and made a difference of $7, 7 bucks. I grew weary. I grew frustrated. I found this out weeks ago that this happened. So finally today I decided to work on it <laughs> because taxes are due what? I don't even remember. Sometime soon. I grew weary while doing good. Now I'm the, I'm the guy that gets my taxes done January, February. I love doing taxes. I didn't want to do it. I grew weary while doing good. It was, I went through my mind and I started thinking, okay, in the whole scheme of things, seven bucks. Aren't we have a budget of like $4.6 or something like that? What's $7? And you sit there in this whole thing of being blameless as a Christian, and that's just a tiny little example. It's just a tiny little example. But you know what? In any situation you have in life, you know what the right path is. I've shared this with you numerous times. A lot of times people come into my office and say, I don't know what to do. And I usually ask them, what do you think the Lord wants you to do? Nine times out of ten, they know what God wants them to do. But it's not difficult to figure out what the right path is. The truth of the matter is we just don't want to do the right thing. Why? Because it's wearisome. We don't want to do it. That's why we struggle with it. That's why we fight it. Because the right thing to do is sometimes the difficult thing to do. That's why in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul writes, don't lose heart. That's why in Galatians 6, 9, he writes, don't lose heart. Because he knows that we will give up. One of my favorite phrases, ministry is not for the thin-skinned or faint-hearted. And some of you may be saying, that's why I'm not in ministry. But we also say what? Every member is a minister. Everybody is called to ministry. Your ministry may be your family. Your ministry may be your co-workers. Your ministry may be at church. Every one of you is a minister in some way or another, ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. And ministry is not for the thin-skinned or faint-hearted. That's why Paul keeps telling us, don't lose heart. Because it's easy to give up when the going gets tough. And the reason we don't lose heart is because of verse 18. I'm still a work in progress. I'm still the caterpillar becoming the butterfly through the Holy Spirit and through what Christ does in me. And I'm being changed into his image. That's still a work in progress. Let's take a quick break here. Anybody have any quick questions, comments about this before we move on with the rest of it? Okay. Because he kind of changes directions here just a little bit. Look at verse 2. Why do we not lose heart? Why are we being changed into the image of Christ? Well, verse 2, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's a smart guy. And sometimes you read some of those verses and you're like, okay, what's he trying to say? Verse 2 just simply is trying to tell you the reason you're here is to present the gospel. That's why you're here. The reason you're being transformed to the image of Christ, verse 18, the reason you don't lose heart, verse 1, is because of verse 2, is because you're supposed to present the gospel of Christ to people that you run into. That is your whole goal, is to present the gospel. So you want to be more Christ-like because you're representing Jesus. You don't want to preach the gospel passed out drunk in one hand. That's not being a good image of Christ. You want to present the gospel as being a picture of Christ in everything that you do. That is why we are here. This is now the point of the rest of chapter 4, is you are here to preach Christ. Look at verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The reason you are here is to present the gospel to those in verse 3 that are perishing. That is why you are here. How many times do we say this out here at Harvest? The two W's. God has created you for two reasons, to witness and to worship. That's why if you read the Bible, those are your two purposes in life, to witness and to worship. If you are not spreading the gospel, and if you do not have that heart to see God glorified, you're going to feel pretty empty in your life. That's just a fact. Because you're supposed to, verse 3, present the gospel to those who are perishing. Now, let's pray to have that heart of evangelism. Now, why don't we do that? Well, because, verse 1, we lose heart. Verse 18, I'm not really that strong of a Christian, so I feel like a hypocrite to go out and spread the gospel. We always have an excuse. But God says, this is what I called you for. Why is it so difficult to talk about the Lord? Well, I think verse 4 shows us this. The God of this age has blinded them. Wow. You know how much easier it would be to spread the gospel of Christ without the influence of the enemy? Boy, oh boy. You know, and the thing about the enemy is sometimes we've got to be careful. We've shared this before. There's two extremes when you deal with Satan. The extreme of Satan's behind absolutely everything, and the other extreme of, oh, let's just not talk about him and pretend he doesn't exist. You know, we just read a few verses ago in verse 11 of chapter 2, lest Satan should take advantage of us, but we're not ignorant of his devices. And we stopped at that point and did a little quick topical on Satan, so we're not ignorant of what he does. And we talked about a few weeks ago, what does Satan do? He's from the beginning, he does what? He twists, he lies, and he deceives. That's what he's done from the beginning. He hasn't changed his plan in 6,000 years. And why doesn't he have to change his plan in 6,000 years? Because it works. He knows if he twists scriptures which he does very well, flip on the TV, the radio, go to the bookstore, you'll see books with tons of verses where scriptures are twisted. Number two, he just outright lies. He just outright lies through certain cults and people. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no Jesus. And he also deceives. He makes himself look good. The Bible says he looks like an angel masquerading as an angel of light. So therefore, we know these things. The God of this age blinds. Boy, and I see Christians get caught up in it a lot. Rich and I were talking today. We talked about how there's this very dangerous area where somebody first gets excited about the Lord. And, they, and Rich says he's seen this a lot because he does a lot of the discipleship teaching out here, where a couple months into discipleship, they come into discipleship class and they say, hey, saw this guy on TV the other day and he said, it's like, oh no. Or you know what, I was just thinking the other day and someone showed me this and, oh no. Because that's what the enemy does. See, when you're not going deeper in the Lord, you're not a threat. Why fight you? When you start going deeper in the Lord, one of the things that he does is he tries to distract you with false doctrine, twisted doctrine, deceptive doctrine. You know, we just had eight people get baptized a couple weeks ago. And what we like to do is we send them a follow-up letter saying, hey, just remember, now that you've made this public confession of the Lord, guess what? It's a huge bullseye on your back. Because now that you want to go deeper in your walk with the Lord, now you want to be a light and a witness, guess what the God of this age is going to do? He's going to try to push you back. And that's why we need to pray. Pray for those people that got baptized. But the God of this age blinds them. Now, when I first got saved, I used to get really ticked at Satan. Because it's like, man, this person wants to get saved, and Satan won't let them. Satan has blinded them. This person has an open heart for Christ, and Satan has blinded them. Look at the full context. Whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. The reason Satan has blinded them because in their heart they don't want to believe. They choose not to. We know from studying the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that if there's somebody who truly desires to be saved in Christ, their heart will be open to the Lord. We know that. 
But what happens is there's people whose heart is not open to the Lord, and so therefore their eyes are blinded. And that's why we have to pray, Lord, open their eyes. Lord, open their eyes. And how do we open their eyes? Well, we open their eyes through Christ, verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. I run into a lot of Christians who preach themselves. And when I say preach themselves, they take it as their personal responsibility to get these people saved. So therefore, verse 5, if they don't get saved, they failed. I know for a fact I can't save anybody. I can only point them towards the cross. They have to choose to get saved or not get saved. And so therefore, if you have someone that you have a really heavy heart for, don't throw their salvation on your shoulders. Their salvation is based on Christ on the cross. Now, you pray for their eyes to be open, verse 4. When God gives you an opportunity, you plant seeds. But their salvation is based on them choosing to accept or reject Jesus. That's what their salvation is based on. And too often as Christians, we put it on us. If I would just fill in the blank, they'd be saved. If I could just share this, they'd be saved. No, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. What do we do? Well, look at verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who is shown in our hearts. God said, I create light out of darkness. I can't create light out of darkness. Only God can. So therefore, he's the only one that can shine into those people's hearts. Verse 6. I can't shine in someone's heart. That's a very liberating, freeing thought. I can't save anybody. I can't make someone's heart be softened. I, I can't shine the gospel in their heart. I can't bring them to their knees. I can't force the cross on them. They have to choose to accept or reject the Lord on their own. The only thing I can do is pray for their eyes to be open. And you know what? Plant seeds. That's all I can do is just keep planting seeds. It's all God, verse 6, that does it. My responsibility is just to plant seeds. And you know what? We know from studying the parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew 13, what? Only one-fourth really get it. I don't know if God's really a statistician or is really saying only one-fourth get it. But according to the parable of the sower and the seed, one-fourth really get it. And you know what? The longer I walk with the Lord, that's probably about true, isn't it? When you get out there and you spread seeds there and you spread the gospel, there's not a lot of people that really get it. And that parable of sower the seeds is so true. There's going to be a group that's just going to outright reject. There's going to be a group that's going to sprout up quickly and you think, boy, these people are just on fire for the Lord. They disappear after a few weeks. You're going to get a group that you think really get it, but after a few months, the world just sucks them back in. And you're also going to get a group that, you know what, you look back over the months and years, they got it. Thank the Lord, they got it. And how did they get it? Because their heart was open to the gospel. Verse 6, the light shone in. Verse 4, the veil was lifted. What was my role? Verse 18 and verse 1. I didn't lose heart. I just kept trying to be a picture of Christ for them to point him in the right direction. They have to choose to accept or reject. And this is actually a very freeing thought when you look about this. Lord, just open their eyes. Lord, open their eyes. And when you get an opportunity, you share the gospel with them, you plant seeds, and you hope that something sprouts and takes off. But it's between them and the Holy Spirit, and that's what it kind of comes down to. Now, Paul changes directions here a little bit again in verse 7. But does anybody have any quick questions, comments about this? Yeah, surely. Mm. Yeah. And discouraging is a good word. It just leads me to a point of almost utter frustration and exasperation where someone says, fine, there's a hell, I don't care if I go. It's like, do you even realize the words that are coming out of your mouth? And the answer is they don't realize the words that are coming out of their mouth because why? It's veiled. 
They don't get it. And, and you reach the point, too, about just so much stuff you know, going on. And, oh my goodness, in this world that we live in, when I see that phrase, the God of this age in verse 4, Satan's got a lot of tools that he uses. He's got a lot of tools. But nothing is more powerful than the Holy Spirit. And we just got to keep remembering his role. Mm. You know, and the thing is, I, off the top of my head, I believe it's in Second Timothy where it says the heart of many will grow cold. Or I think it's a good King James says wax cold there. And, and as the end times get closer, you do see the heart of many people becoming cold towards the gospel and the truth. And we sit there and we say, well, why, why is this going on? Why aren't people being moved by this? Why is this... Because the heart of many are growing cold. You know, the Lord is still trying to speak. The Holy Spirit's still trying to move. But the heart of many are growing cold. God said there's going to be a great falling away at the end. That's what he said. And we're living in that time where you're seeing that great falling away. You're seeing a lot of hearts becoming cold. And God said, hey, this is what I prophesied. This is what's going to happen towards the end. And what does he say? When you see those things happen, he says, what? Don't lose heart and look high because your redemption draws near." And, you know, and I know that's an encouraging thought to us of, okay, Lord, when I see these things happening, people's hearts are growing cold. People don't care about the gospel. People are doing this. That reminds me that you're returning, but that also hurts my heart because you're returning and they're going to be left. But I always cling to a thought. I heard a pastor say this years ago. He says, hey, he goes, more people are going to be saved in the tribulation than what you can ever imagine. Because when we are taken out as a church and people see this, he goes, he really feels there's a lot of people's hearts are going to come to the Lord. I mean, think of the book of Revelation. You got the 144,000, uh, what I call very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Respectfully, I really do. The super Jews there, and the 144,000 out there spreading the gospel. You know, the Bible says that the two witnesses are going to be on the earth. The Bible says there's going to be angels going over in heaven proclaiming the gospel. My goodness, there's going to be a lot of opportunities in the tribulation for people to get saved. A lot of opportunities. And hopefully their hearts come around to that. That's what we've got to keep praying for. But it is discouraging sometimes. But. I tell you, God says, don't give up. He goes, I'm still working and moving, even though you don't see it. Yeah, Megan. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, and, and let me say this. First off to what you're saying, I would, I would disagree with you a little bit that there wasn't a lot of people that turned then because I do believe that there was a lot of seeds planted when that type of stuff happened because if you go into the book of Acts, just a, what, short 40 days later, over 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost. So there's a lot of seeds planted at that time. And also, if you go through the book of Acts 2, I believe it talks about how there was many um, people of the priesthood that came to know the Lord. And so sometimes we say, well, a lot of people, what happened? Why didn't a lot of people get saved? Well, you've got to remember there's also a lot of seeds that are planted. And we can use this analogy to the cows come home. You know, in, in the, this month or next month, people are going to go out and start planting corn or beans. Millions of seeds are going to go in the ground. If you step back one day later, you're going to say, failure, failure. Not a single seed came up. No, it comes up in time. And we just have to be faithful that those seeds that are planted are going to sprout in time. And the problem is in our, what I call our McDonald's fast food Christianity, we want gospel presented, people hit knees, they get saved right away. The truth of the matter is, and I'll put you on the spot, Megan, so I'm going to pick on you for a second. How many years did it take for you to get serious with the Lord? So you got saved. See? Oh, wow. See, seeds were planted and it takes time for the crop to come. And what matters mostly is that the crop eventually comes. 
So for all of us, it's taken many years for some of us to come to the point of realization of the veil being lifted, the gospel being presented. But as long as the crap comes in, isn't that what matters? So just got to be faithful. John. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I mean, you're absolutely right. So often we think that the society we're living in now, oh, it's so much worse than what it was. Same sin nature has been around for thousands of years. Thousands of years. Yeah. Tina. Well, yeah, that's, I think that's part of the twisting deception and lies. You know, I mean, and, and once again, we can sit down here and just go right down the row of, of, of all the cultish organizations that are out there of the, you know, the uh, Mormons that believe in second chance salvation. You know, no one's really going to go to hell because God's going to give them a second chance. The Jehovah Witnesses that just don't even believe in the existence of a hell. I mean, these are all twisting lies, deceptions. Now, I always have to throw this disclaimer out there. We're not trying to bash anybody, but that's the truth. And also, in truth, you speak love. We want those people to have a real understanding and knowledge and relationship of Christ, of really who Jesus is. But that truth gets twisted and deceived and lied to. That's what Satan does. He hasn't changed, once again, he hasn't changed his battle plan in 6,000 years. When he led uh, Eve down the path of deception, he twisted and just lied. Same thing he does today. Well, and hopefully the truth comes out, you know. Anybody else have anything here? I just want to close up this real quick. We won't do all I was going to do tonight because we're running out of time, but I at least want to get to these verses. Once again, and this is a compliment to us, the gospel does not lie on our shoulders because the gospel is between the Holy Spirit speaking to their hearts. We can't save people. But look at verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. See, it's not us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body and the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be made manifest in our body. And I wanted to get to that passage because, you know, first off, we sang that song tonight, and it's always cool when the Spirit brings it together. Uh, happens Sunday, too. We're talking about Esther and God being in control, and they sang that song about He's the God of happenstance. And, you know, and you see this song that they sang tonight, too, those words right there. You are an earthen vessel. You're a clay pot. You're pretty fragile. And so, yes, we're a fragile thing, but God says in you is a treasure. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And God says, remember, verse 7, it's me, not you. I love that. It's him, not us. And so, therefore, why do we not lose heart? Verse 1, some of you came in tonight, you're hard-pressed on every side. Verse 8, but you're not crushed. Is God your strength and shield? You're perplexed. You may be in a situation right now there's just utter confusion. And you may say, Lord, I don't know up from down on this. I don't know what you want me to do. But you're not in despair because you're going to seek God in wisdom. Some of you come in tonight and you're persecuted. you got somebody in your house. you got somebody at work. you got somebody at school. You're persecuted. But you know what? You're not forsaken because Jesus says, I've been down that path. You're struck down. Life right now is very difficult. But God says, you're not destroyed. Why? Because you have in you the Lord Jesus, and that is verse 10, the life. And God says, I want that to be made manifest in your body. And remember that word manifest, because we'll build on that in a couple weeks, because that word manifest is used three different times in this chapter. And that word means to be made visible. So what God is saying is, you are an earthen pot. 
Not really worth a whole lot, according to the world, but you have a treasure inside of you of a relationship with Christ, and the purpose of that is, verse 10, that you may make manifest Jesus, that is, you may make Christ visible in your actions and your words. It all comes back to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why you are here. That is why we are transformed from glory to glory. That is why we don't give up in despair, because God says the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and I'm going to use you to spread the gospel of Christ And don't allow yourself to be crushed and perplexed and knocked down because God says, I'm your strength. I'll get you through it. What a glorious blessing that that is. So we have to end there after 8 o'clock and I have teachers and kids coming and peering through the window uh, wondering how I'm going to get done. They obviously don't love Jesus like you guys do. Um, Does anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up then?